Our scripture this morning is Matthew 5, 1 through 12. It's on page 809. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Hmm. Good morning. I feel really hot right now. Can we take that down just a little bit? Um, not like hot, like. I think you know what I mean. So, <laughs> I'm Kent, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'd love to pray and jump into this, this text of the poor in spirit with you. Father God, Lord, give us hearts to receive one of the most controversial and whether you want to call it flipping the world upside down or flipping it right side up, one of the words that shaped your kingdom and is continuing to shape your kingdom. Lord, let us not have hearts that have heard it way too much and therefore miss the freshness of something that you're doing in our lives today. And Lord, let us not be people who mishear it. Lord, that you have come to say who is actually blessed and the first group you identify are the poor in spirit. And Lord, there's a lot. A lot going on in that phrase, and there's a lot that you're wanting to bring. And so I pray just right now you'd be bringing that in your Holy Spirit's name, uh, in Jesus' name, through your Holy Spirit's power to, to move and to give us a fresh perspective on, again, a controversial, mind-blowing reality that you just happen to roll off at the very top of the Sermon on the Mount. And so, Lord, we need your help to do that. And we ask you to be here, and we thank you, Lord, that, that ultimately there's no pressure on anyone in the room except for you, and you love to take that pressure, and you love to step into the idea that you are going to open people's eyes again or for the first time to the fresh reality of blessed are the poor in spirit. We pray that in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to do something that I don't know that I've ever really done while preaching, and that is I'm going to make you painfully conscious of the point of the sermon in which we are at right now, which is the introduction. Introductions are things that people and pastors freak out about. They, some like just sit there and sweat over how do I get this perfect introduction. Some pastors or speakers skip introductions altogether. Let's just jump right into the action. And Everyone knows if you've had any sort of public speaking class or experience or just simply somebody has told you how to present yourself, 
the introductions are to do two things. They're to grab the attention of the audience so that they would lean in and want to know more of which you are going to tell them. And they are also supposed to introduce everything that you'll discuss. They're supposed to in some ways be a microcosm of the entire sermon or the entire speech. And so it's no wonder that pastors or public speakers, and that includes you when you had to give the speech at your best friend's or sibling's wedding, will freak out and stew and wring your hands over introductions. And why am I telling you this? For this reason. Because we are staring down the barrel of the Son of God's introduction to his most radical sermon of all time. And Again, uh, last week, as I said, we started a sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' most famous teaching. But don't hear, like, it's famous teaching and think, okay, it's like the most vanilla and most, like, appeals to the broadest audience. Again, it is radical and countercultural, which even those words, I feel like we use them enough that they lose their meaning uh, of all that this is. Like, these are chapters that are outlandish and paradigm-shifting, and they're the most rebellious piece of propaganda ever uttered. And, and the word propaganda might make, uh, not make sense or might not be clear of what I'm trying to say here, because I'm not trying to say that this is misleading, like mo- many pieces of propaganda are, because propaganda doesn't necessarily have to be misleading. The definition of propaganda, I had to look this up, is simply information used to promote or publicize a particular political cause or point of view. And don't get Jesus wrong. He is being overwhelmingly political and giving a whole new point of view. But he's not endorsing some party, like he's coming here to like say, okay, here's the, finally we're gonna know, Jesus supports the right or the left or the one who will not choose either side. Rather, he's saying, I reject the entire system because I'm bringing in my kingdom. I am bringing in a new political party altogether, and it is those who are going to be under the kingdom and kingship of God. And that's what we talked about all of last week, was just that God, that Jesus was all about this reality, that he was bringing a kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was this idea that when he made, when God made heaven and earth, he made them as overlapping kingdoms. They were meant to always be connected to one another. But because of humanity and our ability to just say, no, thank you, I want my own kingdom, we ripped the kingdoms apart. And we said, you know, we pushed God out of the kingdom of the world, and we said, no, we want these to be separate kingdoms because we want the freedom to pursue that which we feel will make us most free and most happy. And the most ironic thing was that in trying to move towards life, we ended up separating ourselves from the author of life. And so just like a leaf that falls from a tree, the second we pulled ourselves off of that kingdom, we began dying and shriveling. And I mean that literally in that where bodies are all moving towards decay. And I also mean that in the more metaphorical figurative sense that all of life became broken and cracked in a place where we have to stand up here and pray for mass shootings on a very regular basis. And in the midst of this scenario... A Jewish peasant starts walking around and he's healing diseases and demon possession and death. And he says, good news, the kingdom of God is bursting back into this reality. The good and righteous and loving king is taking his place back on the throne of this realm. And who wants to get reconnected to the source of life? And so, 
as he does that, in light of all that, Jesus sits down and begins teaching exactly what his kingdom is going to look like under his rule. Or better put, he begins teaching us of what it means to be human again. I I heard a pastor refer to the Sermon on the Mount as this, Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be human in the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God, which is a bit of a mouthful. But it's absolutely true to the spirit of what Jesus is preaching about. It's this idea that Jesus is saying, hey, with this new reality, with me back on the throne, with eternity back into the mix, then it would only logically make sense you to live like this, for you to be filled with my spirit, my kingdom, and now be free to be the way you were designed to be in the first place. And so that brings us back to the moment of suspense of asking how Jesus plans to kick off what is literally, and when I say literally, by the way, I mean literally and not figuratively, which is what most people mean when they say literally. Literally kick off the most revolutionary sermon in the history of the world. What would draw in his hearers and yet make them yearn to hear more and also summarize the entirety of his kingdom announcement? And he does it with these words. He opened his mouth and taught, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm guessing that the Beatitudes feel familiar to most of you. Maybe some of you, first time in church, first time like really getting the Bible, and you're not really familiar with them. Glad you're here, and uh, let me explain a little bit what they are, uh, and I'm going to do that in a little bit. But first, let me just talk and deal with the reality that most of us are like, okay, what's so revolutionary about something that's crocheted on pillows across America? And don't let your familiarity with the Beatitudes save you from the volatility and controversial nature of them. The statement of blessed are the poor in spirit, I would contend, is more controversial than anything that Howard Stern or any political blog comment has ever said. But it's not controversial just for controversy's sake. In fact, the irony about Jesus coming in and giving this rebellious revolutionary sermon is that he, in the end, is not the rebel. He's the king. So when he comes out and says, gives us something revolutionary, it's actually lining us up with how things were meant to be. Again, he's taking the world and setting it right side up, which we tend to always talk about the Sermon on the Mount as flipping things upside down, because from our perspective, it's taking everything we know and turning it on its head. But in reality, in his kingdom perspective, it's taking everything that's always been on its head since you and I came into our existence and flipping it back on its feet. And so we get the Beatitudes. And the way that we want to work through these is just simply one at a time, going through and and moving into how each of these, what Jesus was announcing for every group of people here and who is actually blessed. And so for today, I simply want to ask about the first Beatitude. Who are the poor in spirit? Why are they blessed? And what does that mean for me and you? We're the poor in spirit. Why are they blessed? And what's that mean? I want to apply it to a couple different uh, groups of people. So who are the poor in spirit? Well, first of all, the term poor is a good translation because it is a term that meant 
material poverty. And so and, and this is talking about the weak and the needy, this word. It's, it's the, the physically poor is what this would bring to mind. But the problem is, is this has led a lot of people to say, okay, so this is Jesus talking about, like, blessed are the poor, which is actually what Luke is going to record in his Sermon on the Plain, which is very comparable to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Apparently, Jesus had one sermon, and he kept preaching it all the time. And, and so in that, he literally, Luke just writes down, blessed are the poor, and he moves on. But, but the problem with this idea is it's led to a poverty gospel mentality, and that means that in order to be accepted by God, I must become poor. And of course, you can take texts like the rich young ruler where God says, hey, give away everything that you own. And then once you become poor, like, you know, then it will be like entering into my kingdom. And, and again, you can take that text and it's actually not that hard to confuse that with the idea that, that, okay, God just accepts people who give away all their money and become poor and he won't accept the rich. Because right after that, Jesus is going to say, hey, it's harder for the rich man to, or a camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But if you really get into what Jesus is saying and then you take his teaching and the first thing you have to do with any teaching in the Bible is compare it to all of the whole of the scriptures. You realize that, that that idea, if that was the only part of scripture, then that's what we would get is blessed are the poor. But we get this larger idea in the scripture that know that, that Jesus isn't blessing any group of people based on their monetary wealth, uh, whether that be positive or negative. That, that there's something you have to do with him However, he still comes to this point of saying, blessed are the poor, and of course he modifies it in spirit. Now, don't be naive. The group that Jesus was talking to was tremendously physically and materially impoverished. He was talking to an extremely poor crowd who would follow him out and hear his teaching. But in that moment, Jesus is being a brilliant preacher and contextualizer in that he is taking something that all of them felt physically. Hey, blessed are the poor. You know what that's like, right? Because that's all of you. And I'm going to modify it. The poor in spirit. Those who have a spiritual poverty, a bankruptcy. So what is that? What's well, Again, kind of interesting to even press deeper into this word. Uh, the word here in Greek is patakos, or patakos, which, uh, uh, patokos, thank you, there you go. As patakos sounds like, I'm hungry, apparently. <laughs> uh, patokos, thank you, get my Greek pronunciation going here. Um, so patokos is an onomatopoeia, and if you missed uh, sixth grade English or whatever, uh, onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it is. So splat or bam or splash is all onomatopoeia. And this word, patokos, is meant to sound like a bit what it means. And that is it sounds as if somebody is spitting across in someone's face. And so when it says, blessed are the patokos, the idea that's conjured up is those who are so poor, those who are in such the margins of society that they are the spat upon. I don't know if you've ever been spat upon. Um, I have. And I was in uh, Spain at the time, and I was in a plaza in which every, if you go to Europe, every little place where tourists hang out, they have these group of people that dress up like, you know, I don't know, this guy was dressed up like a conquistador matador and all gold. And they 
come and invite you to take your picture with them, but of course you need to put some money in their bucket before you do. And so until you do, they cover themselves uh, with, you know, this guy was covering himself with his little red, you know, Toro uh, cape and his shield. And so I, being um, a college student, uh, felt I was entitled to a picture without paying. And so I decided to try to, like, sneak behind him as my friends, like, uh, position the camera so that I, he would know I was there, and while he was not expecting it, I could be over his shoulder and catch a, s a quick picture. Um, well, it turns out uh, he did not take kindly to this gesture, uh, and he discovered me at one point, and uh, at first he discovered me, and he kind of chased me off, and I, being a bold and, and foolish college student, go back in and try it again, and so all of a sudden I hear an utterance of a word, and this man has now his conquistador mask pulled off his face, screaming something very angry in Spanish, and he spits upon me. Now, luckily, he had, I had enough distance and enough dodgeball experience that I was able to uh, miss the initial impact of the spit. But I will tell you, there is something about being spat upon, particularly, I mean, we don't do it much in our culture, but in cultures that is to mark the lowest of the low, that you are worthy of my germs and saliva being poured up on you. I spit on you. And that's who this group is. It's the lowlifes of society. And you have to understand, that had much more moral implication than it does for us. Like, in the lowlifes of society, those who were diseased, those who were poor, those who were prostitutes and tax collectors were all put in the group of sinners. A and that idea of sinner is that you are poor because God is angry with you for your sin. You are cursed. You are the least of these. Cursed are the ones who deserve what they get, for they are sinful said Jesus's pop culture of the day. Now, to us, the modern American, this seems totally backwards because we have this concept of like, no, there's like the prostitute with the heart of gold. And, and we don't necessarily assign a moral problem with material poverty or disease that we say, no, there's, there's much more complex than that. But at the same time, don't you kind of do this? I mean, if if things go wrong for you and you have any sort of theological framework at all, do you start examining your life for how you are being disobedient to God for why he would not give you blank or he would give you blank? Or if you really want something from God, do you start praying more? Do you start reading your Bible more consistently? Do you start modifying your behavior for a short period of time? Because blessed are those who keep themselves from sin. It's not too different from how we treat God. And so in this, we get this list, and, and Paul Simon uh, from Simon and Garfunkel wrote a song. He wrote a song called Blessed, and he just wrote kind of a modern take on this list. As he says, blessed are the sat upon, the spat upon, the ratted on. Blessed, blessed are the meth drinkers, the pot sellers, the illusion dwellers. That's referring people to people uh, who are trying to maintain a high. Blessed are the penny rookers, the cheap hookers, the groovy lookers. It was the 60s, so that was, that was actually um, cool. Um, and essentially, these were the people that were dressed up for the party, that they were um, people who enjoyed a good time. 
And so who are the poor in spirit? They are the spiritually bankrupt, the ones who have gone too far, crossed too many lines, and hurt too many people, and who don't have any spiritual favors to cash in on in the presence of God. So let me ask then, how are these people blessed? Begs the question of Jesus' statement. Like, what is it to be blessed? Like, if you grew up anywhere near the South, which I didn't, but I've known now enough Southern people to know the term um, blessed is actually kind of an insult. Like, if, if a Southern woman says, bless your heart, she's calling you a moron or someone worthy of her pity. It's not a compliment. She's called you a buffoon. And so there's something uh, in that where we kind of take blessing, or you can take blessing into like, okay, life circumstances have smiled upon that person. They have received the job or the looks or the family or that which we all desire. And, And to a certain extent, this is how they saw blessing. That there was a way in which you lived that that brought you the prosperity and flourishing of life. Now, we also, in our our vernacular, take blessing as like God blesses you. Like if you do this, God will smile upon you. But but the Beatitudes are much more of the, the flourishing type, that there's a way to live life in which will bring about your flourishing. It's like in Psalm uh, 1, where it talks about blessed is the man who uh, dwells on the word of the Lord day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, and even in dry, he will not wither. That there is a way that, that by reading his Bible, it's not that God looks down and blesses him by just, you know, zapping into good things into his life, but rather he's living in such a way that God has designed the world. By dwelling on truth and real reality, he will tend to live a blessed life. He will tend to flourish. And so you could read the Beatitudes, flourishing are the poor in spirit, which still begs the question, how are these people flourishing? And I would say it's this, they understand one simple truth, and this is a, maybe a reworking modern way of saying this beatitude. You can have everything. You can have everything in my kingdom as long as you bring nothing. You can have everything as long as you bring with you in exchange for that nothing. See, Christianity is riddled with this concept of grace. And we talk about grace a lot here at Soma, and it's because it's a pretty big deal in in, in our lives. And grace, so many times, we'll talk about it and we'll define it as unmerited favor. But actually, I'm in a class right now, and my professor was talking about how he's like, that's actually the wrong way to interpret grace because it doesn't go far enough. Grace is not unmerited favor. You haven't failed to merit what God has given you. It is demerited favor, which I know demerits sounds like you're in a scouting troop and doesn't really give the severity of what he's trying to talk about. And so let me bring this a little bit more into our place and time. That, that if I want to really bring a modern list that, that we would think of, what the, like a similar thing that they thought of with the poor in spirit, I would make one more like this. That blessed are the perverts and the pedophiles, the ones who beat up on the poor, insecure kid who's struggling because his parents are fighting. Blessed are the wife beaters. Blessed 
are the rapists, the white supremacists, the sex traffickers, and those who fire automatic weapons into crowds. For God's kingdom is here for you, even you, even you. See, there's um, a lot of sex trafficking ministries that are good and right, and we even have been a part of supporting Restored through one of our missional communities. And it's interesting, there's a lot of just movement towards, hey, there, and there's something so right about that Jesus would have been in this group and there would have been probably trafficked women in that group and he would have been saying, hey, I know you're the spat upon. I know you're the ones who haven't gotten the fair shake. I, I, I know you're the ones who have gotten addicted to something and now given as this is your only way to support your habit or, or you were or abducted and put into this or maybe you actually made the choice for some insane reason to go into this profession and either you can't get out or you don't want out and the kingdom of God is here for you, even you. In that same crowd would be the trafficker. It would be the one that Jesus would go into the sex trafficking ministry to bring women out and restore them to lives of flourishing and he would go into the traffickers and say, hey, my kingdom's here for you too. And I just get the feeling that our culture has, has built ourselves in such a way that, that we understand grace to, to the prostitutes, but we struggle and are a little bit offended by the idea of grace to the white supremacists. And Jesus is saying, hey, hey, my, my kingdom has come for those who realize they have nothing because you can have everything as long as as you bring nothing. And I realize that not every person in all those groups are going to realize that they have nothing to bring. But that's where you get the thief on the cross, who when Jesus is being crucified for the sin of the world, he sits next to two thieves, one hurling insults, and the other saying, hey, we are getting justly treated for how we have, how we have acted. We're getting our just due, which is crazy that he's like saying, no, I have hurt so many people's lives. I have broken uh, people and taken from them, and I have made pain in this world. And there's so much of those groups that we think like they deserve to rot in hell. And this is what that thief is saying. I agree. But he turns to Jesus and he says, hey, remember me when you come into my kingdom. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. I just have to imagine there'd be a lot of people who that thief was personally hurt by that would really struggle with that man entering into paradise moments after that sentence was uttered. But Jesus is very clear. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones who know they have nothing to bring because they can have everything when they bring nothing. See, Jesus really drove this idea home and, and before I move on to that point, I just want to say, this is not saying that holiness is no big deal. I mean, the whole Sermon on the Mount is going to say like, hey, like press into these realities, press into this way to live and to be human. Uh, but, but Jesus is saying that, that those who receive everything are those who have nothing because they realize they have nothing to give, which is what he's talking about in Luke 18. And so if you uh, have a Bible, 
and would li- uh, like to follow along, then please uh, flip open to, in the Black Bibles, it's page 877, Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus tells a parable, might be familiar to some of you. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Now, if it stopped there, then this is a really cool story of how the tax collector gets saved and that how God can take. And, and don't kid yourself. Every person that I've named uh, every group of people that I've named would probably not measure up to what they thought about of a tax collector. And the fact that he could be saved would be mind-blowing to them. But the fact that the sentence goes on is another part that we just have to deal with as a part of all this. But the tax collector is saying for our office, so I say, I tell you this man, uh, sorry, verse 14, I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So I want to apply all this to a couple people, uh, a couple groups of people I'd say in the room. The first I would like to speak to is if you're here and you're not a Christian and you don't know why you're here because you don't feel comfortable at church and you don't belong with like the goody two-shoes Christians and you've done things that would make us all blush like if you were to like speak them out loud and you feel spiritually bankrupt. I'm really glad you're here because I want to tell you that maybe for the first time if you haven't heard that the kingdom of God, that Jesus is for you. That he didn't come for the healthy as he'll say in his own, own words came for the sick and that is spiritually speaking as much as physically so so if you're in the room and you count yourselves amongst the healthy don't know what he has for you but if you're here in the room and you count yourself among the sick then he's here for you even you and you're like you don't understand you don't know like you don't know me you don't know my path yeah right i have no clue who you are and that's why i always will bring up the apostle paul the one who wrote so much of the Bible, writes like almost the entire New Testament, and was a terrorist in modern terms. I mean, was killing and seeking out Christians to kill them when Jesus pops him off of his horse, blinds him, and says, hey, you belong to me now because I am going to make you a trophy of all that which I can save. I can save anybody. So unless you have risen to the level of terrorism, and even if you have gotten to that point, I don't have to know you to fully apply this to your life. And that, in the end, uh, you can say, or or I've said before, it's not that sin is not a a huge deal. Uh, It has to be paid for. But, But when the Bible says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away all the sin of the world, that that's talking about any and every sin. Any and every sin that someone is willing to give over to the cross of Jesus. 
And so you can be like John Newton. John Newton was a very angry sailor, like literally, like he was a sailor uh, that lived, you know, a uh, century or two ago, I guess. I don't know, didn't look it up, but either way. Uh, he's old and uh, dead. Uh, either way, uh, he was a sailor, though, and he lived, and he was uh, reported for being able to string on for two hours of cursing without repeating himself, which I don't care who you are, that is talent. And he also was so, like, unpleasant to be around that none of the other sailors of the ship liked him so much that they abandoned him on Africa. They just like anchors away and then we go and like they leave him on uh, on Africa. He's found in Africa and he is enslaved by the African people. And then eventually somehow he's he's liberated. He's he's able to become free and he returns bitter and drunk and commits his life to taking out his rage on the country of Africa. And so he begins going ship after ship to Africa to collect Africans and sell them into slavery. The same act that he was perpetrated against, he becomes the perpetrator of. And then one night he's sailing and a storm comes upon his ship. And I mean, it was one so much that he utters for the very first time in his life, God, help me. And God does. And he's, he's spared of the storm. And he knows that he's spared, and he even knows on some level, okay, God did this. Like, I shouldn't have made it out, and I, like, you know, maybe it's a coincidence, but I believe that God saved me. But he didn't know much about the God that saved him. And so eventually, he comes across some people who start telling him and teaching him about a God who has been so gracious to not only save him from the storm, but to save him from all of his sin. And so then he becomes a pastor, one that is known for being so merciful to the most hideous of sinners. And then he also becomes known as one who works to do much to overturn the slave trade, even inspires William Wilberforce, the man who overturned the slave trade in Europe. And then he's also known for writing a song in which the lyrics go, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that a grace appear the hour I first believed. And so I, that, that hour for you, I mean, that might literally be the hour right now. We might be for that hour for you. But I also want to apply to two other groups. I also want to apply to Christians who are just like struggling daily, and you just Yes, you became a believer, and yes, maybe there was this initial excitement, and you started like pushing back some sin in your life, but now you've just realized that actually you feel like there's more sin that's like just indwelling on you every single day, and you can't get out of it. And, or maybe you're the one who's just like, man, I was so passionate about like Jesus and the gospel, and I just like wanted to like learn, and, and now I feel like maybe a couple months, a couple years, a decade or something in, my heart's just kind of grown, grown cold. And I would say that, that God is not far from you. In fact, the fact that you feel like you have nothing to bring him in this moment makes him maybe closer than he's been in a while. And don't hear me wrong. That's not like, okay, so I, I, I'm going to like intentionally struggle with sin. I mean, Romans is going to write about that. Hey, like, should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Like, Paul literally says, you're damned if you do. Like, if that kind of thinking is not what's going to lead out of grace in the gospel. But it is saying, don't hear that side of the message. Hear this. 
for those of you struggling with weakness, for those of you who realize I am not getting my act together as quickly as I thought I was going to get this thing together, that it is not your spiritual inability that keeps you far from the presence of God. In fact, if we're to take Luke 18, uh, 9 to what it's saying, it's your spiritual ability that might be the thing that keeps you far from God. I was talking with someone recently about just counseling someone. They were just like, man, like I just feel like I have the, I have the, I sit down with them, we talk through, we say these truths, we pray these prayers, and then a couple days later or a week later, I sit down, I talk through, we say these truths, we pray these prayers, and this has been going on so long. It's like, what, what point do we just kind of like give them over? And I said, like, essentially, this is what it is to walk with people in the gospel. This is what it is to grow in the faith is to come and to apply the gospel daily and, and regularly in community, confessing and moving forward and backwards and forwards and backwards. And sometimes you feel like you're more backwards than you are forwards. And it's continuing to hold on the idea that blessed are the poor in spirit, that the ones who can have everything are those who realize they have nothing to bring. And then lastly, let me just apply this to the, to the rich in spirit. There's a list um, that somebody blogged. It's called a bucket list of things you can do before going to hell. And uh, I was like, that's that's clickbait, but I will take it. And so (laughs) in the list, it's very long. I don't know how much of this I'll get through, but let's just start. Uh, Here's a bucket list of things you can do before going to hell. Be a scripture memorizer. Teach Sunday school. Tithe. Be a brilliant theologian. Think you're one of the elect. Listen to Christian radio. Work on Christian radio. Protest same-sex marriage. Protest people who protest same-sex marriage. Lead powerful worship. Preach the word for half an hour every Sunday. Uh, Be a missionary in Africa. Host a small group from your church. Vote pro-life. Go to seminary. Feel guilty every day. Pray for the president. Tweet with hashtag Christian hashtag hashtag. Have a brilliant theologically astute uh, understanding of grace. Talk to people about Christ. Say the sinner's prayer. Speak in tongues. Wear WWJD bracelets. Start an award-winning ministry to people with AIDS. Be an elder in your church. Lead family devotions. Keep trying not to sin. Argue theology on your blog. Take a stand for prayer in school. Start a hip organic church. Use Christian-y cuss words instead of the real flipping thing. (laughs) Take or receive communion every week, month, quarter, year, without fail. Come forward at church youth camp. Take a stand uh, for truth and combat the lies of Rob Bell. Place a sticker of fish, preferably eating a Darwin fish, on your car. Pray for two hours a day. Read John Piper. Read the Bible every day. Argue the drinking alcohol alcohol ruins your witness. Witness to people in your neighborhood homebrewing discussion group. Uh, Say under God really loud in the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. Rue those new choruses that lack deep uh, theology. Write a list like this. Uh, Personally baptize people. Personally lead people in singing Chris Tomlin songs. Personally baptize Chris Tomlin. Sponsor Child Through Compassion International, get a Christian tattoo, steer clear of R-rated movies, homeschool your children, organize VBS, uh, weep openly at your small group, work at Focus on the Family, speak at Focus the Family event, tisk tisk Harry Potter, ha- <laughs> have a model marriage, know who Priscilla and Aquila are, know who Shan Shane are, watch Repeatedly Fireproof, go to confession, eschew banal and commercial Christian culture, and listen to Sufjan Stevens and Over the Rhine. Be a key member of the church and it offers solid biblical teaching. None of that namby-pamby stuff. Be a pastor who offers solid biblical teaching. None of that namby-pamby stuff. Watch Fox News. Believe that people who watch Fox, Fox News lack your sophistication. <laughs> and lead your neighbor to Christ. We actually got through. In that. Yeah, no. I, you, <laughs> I, I got it. I did it. Um, 
in all that, don't miss his point. That it is not our spiritually inability that can keep us far from God, but rather just like the Pharisee, because this may be that list. And a lot of these, I mean, some of them are tongue in cheek, obviously, but a lot of these things are really good things and things I'm praying for in my life and yours. But if we for a moment begin to hold on to now God is more pleased with me because I've gotten here, then we have missed the entire point of his message. That you can have the day where you read your Bible, you wake up early before the alarm, you love your kids, you love your wife, you love your roommate, you minister to your coworkers, you minister to your waiter at lunch, you do everything. Or you can have the day where you miss the alarm, you cuss as you get up, you don't read your Bible because there's no time, you scream at your kids, your roommate, your wife, your husband, you just check out at work, you don't even do what you're meant to do. And all of those days, how does God see you any differently? And in this idea, the idea of grace is that there is not a difference. And so for the heart that continually says, oh, I feel good today because now I feel like God is pleased with me. There's a sense that you need to repent of even your righteous acts. That's what's so crazy about the kingdom of God is some people, it's not their wicked deeds that keep them far from it. It's their, wic- it's their good and righteous deeds. And so, ultimately, you're like, okay, so then how does one escape hell? How does, like, if that's not a list, and we've said it, but let me just end with it, because I feel like I just want to keep and remain clarity that you must cling to the cross of Jesus and nothing else, to the grace of Jesus and nothing else. That blessed and the poor spirit were saying, hey, this is how you'd set yourself up to be flourishing in life, because you realize you can have everything long as you bring nothing, because you have nothing to bring, nothing to, uh, in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling, is what we hold ourselves and keep bringing ourselves back to day after day after day after day, because it keeps ourselves from that arrogance that looks at other people that says they just haven't quite got it like I do. That we all stand before the cross on our face, praising God for someone who would save a wretch like me and like you. And so that's the moment of communion every week. That's this moment. Whether you are the hour I first believed person, the Christian who is realizing, man, even my sin and even my like, lack of affection is not keeping me from the presence of God, or you're someone who even is realizing, I have been so gloating in my righteousness that I've, become, I've begun to look more like the Pharisee than the tax collector, that all of us have this opportunity to come forward to the moment of communion the bread that represents the body that was broken for your sin and gave you your righteousness and the blood in the cup that, or the, the, the cup that represents the blood, not actually blood, but either way. Uh, but in a spiritual way, it is that Jesus's blood is covering us of our sin and covering us in his righteousness. And so wherever you are, if you're the righteous person, if you're the one poor in spirit, rich in spirit, somewhere in between, then this place is for you. And I invite you in a moment to come forward, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and you can turn to your seat. You can do that whenever you feel ready. And there's a gluten-free, allergy-free station up to the front of your left, my right. And then before we all start shifting and moving to that moment, as we always say, if you're here and not a Christian, and you're still wrestling with these realities, 
then feel no obligation to come forward, to continue to wrestle. If this isn't the hour, if you're first believing, totally fine. We, we hope to, that you would come to that hour. We'd love to talk to you about if you've come to that hour. But, but th- don't come forward and just take this, but rather take Christ. Take the cross. Or, or continue to pray and wrestle with it. And then always as we have people to pray for you, no matter where you find yourself on that spectrum or no matter if that's your prayer, men and women will be at the connect table to pray for you. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, again, uh, there's so many ways to hear this message wrongly, so I'm going to trust that your Holy Spirit is going to communicate it even in places where I have failed to do it well. And so, Lord, please tear away the words that have brought away false conceptions of blessed are the poor in spirit and edify those in our minds that, Lord, have really brought us to a point of realizing where we're at, Lord, if we are one who has never received the idea that that Jesus is close to the poor in spirit or if we are ones that have found ourselves praying and looking over and saying, at least I'm not like this person who's actually the one who might be entering the kingdom. And so, Lord, give us hearts to receive and to be poor in spirit because that is what you have made to flourish. Those are the ones who are actually blessed. Lord, keep ourselves, keep our hearts from pride. Keep our hearts from the disease that is so easily leading us astray for thinking that somehow we earn this, somehow we're better than, somehow we have got our lives together finally. And so, Lord, make us a people that say nothing in our hands we bring, but only to the cross we cling. And that is our anthem. That is our chorus. That is our life idea that we come to again and again and again and again in the midst of sin, in the midst of cold-heartedness, in the midst of self-righteousness. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.